Welcome to the Divorce Survival Guide podcast, where we have open and honest conversations about co-parenting, separation, divorce, and the hardest question of all, should you stay or should you go? I'm Kate Anthony, your Divorce Survival Guide, and I'm here to help you navigate some of the roughest waters you've ever swum in and answer some of your toughest questions. I've been to hell and back, and now it's my mission in life to help you get to the other side of this process with your sanity and your heart intact. Hey everyone. So today's episode is going to be a game changer. Um, We are going to be talking about uh, couples therapy with an abuser, when it works, when it doesn't work, um, how to protect yourself and all sorts of stuff with our, um, (laughs) I should call her my, our in-house guest uh, expert at this point, uh, Annette Altman's. So um, this is a really, really great one. If um, you've listened to her other episodes, you know that um, Annette is one of the very, very, very few people whose husbands actually did change. And so we're going to talk about what that really, really, really entailed. Because a lot of people hear that and they want to know, like, okay, well, what does that mean? And so I think there's a lot of information in this episode about that and about really what's required in couples therapy to help with an abuser and when it is really, really dangerous. Before we get to that episode, I just want to let you know that we have a couple of spots left in Grit and Grace. And you guys, it's going so well. When I create a program, I mean, I can create the framework for it and I know what we're going to do. But when it's a program with live participants as opposed to one of my online programs, you know, you really don't know how it's going to go until you get the participants together and you feel the energy, right? Because everybody has their own energy and everybody brings their own energy. And when they're all together, there is a collective energy. And it is unbelievable, truly unbelievable. I'm blown away. It is so much richer and more um, gorgeous than I could have anticipated or planned for. And that is just because of the women who are in the program. They're just stunning. If you are interested in grit and grace, you get the really the benefit of one-on-one attention because we have a 90 minute intake call that is really, really, really uh, deep and rich. And then I give you your personalized program map. So I tell you what work you need to do in order to achieve the goals that you say you want to achieve in the program. Um, And then a few that I might identify for you. And then you also get the benefit of the community. So it's really, you get both. You get the individualized attention and the community and chef's kiss. Unbelievable. So um, we have a couple more spots left. So if you want to get into Grit and Grace or you think it might be uh, good for you, a good fit for you, go over to my website, kateanthony.com slash coaching, and then you can read more about it, scroll down and click the button to sign up for a consultation. And you and I will get on the phone and we'll talk about whether or not it's a good fit for you. So again, that's kateanthony.com slash coaching. And now without further ado, here is my conversation yet again with the amazing, the one and only, Annette Holtmans.
Annette, thank you so much for coming back. My audience loves you. <laughs> so. oh, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. And I have so much fun with you. I love it. I love it. So we're going to talk about couples therapy. But first, there was a question on our last episode that you felt like you didn't answer. And so you wanted to answer it now. I know. I was so embarrassed. I listened to the podcast and I realized I never fully answered your question. What is the difference between a narcissist and a sociopath? Um, but And I want to give an example because I was thinking about it afterwards. I, I, I was, I emphasize that um, a psychopath versus a narcissist is on a continuum. Uh We all have some narcissistic traits, right? but I wouldn't really give an example. And I was thinking um, about a situation that was brought to my attention. um, And I I think it's a good example. Um, And what what this was, was um, the, the, the female was the victim in this circumstance that I'm going to talk about. And her husband um, did a lot of traveling for work and he would um, not like the night before he was traveling, he would forget to move the suitcases out of the way. So if she would get up to use the restroom, she would trip on the suitcases. (laughs) Now, a typical narcissist might just be thinking, I don't want to forget to bring my briefcase and my whatever all of it is. So he wants them positioned easily, but she had to travel around to his side of the bed to get to the restroom. So she, he could just go right into the restroom and she had to travel around the bed. So she would trip and fall. Now I can see a narcissist doing this, thinking about themselves But what makes it a sociopath is if they know full well, the person is going to trip and fall and they want them to, Right. they they get some sense of passive aggressive satisfaction out of knowing that they might injure themselves. Yes. Right. It's they, they don't, it's not just that they don't have empathy. It's that they also derive pleasure from our pain. Correct. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yes. And so they will actually do things like that, like put the suitcases there in order to create the circumstance, not in a sense of sort of like uh, self-serving. Yeah, not like not just like because they're just thinking about themselves and they're not thinking right. about somebody else, but they're actually doing something deliberate. That's right. Mm-hmm, yes. And I wonder, how do you know? She can tell over time. She yeah. will be able to tell. Uh-huh. It's a repeated problem. A narcissist might make the mistake a few times, but when there's a lack of empathy for the situation or when if she does trip and hurt herself and it continues, then she absolutely will know. Yep. Okay. And also with, with an attitude this passive aggressive re- sense of retaliation, punishment for other things in the relationship, she will sense that punishing mm-hmm. disdain. Yeah, because somebody who a narcissist might be like, oh shit, I'm so sorry, I wasn't thinking. Correct. Right. And then they might do it again and be like, oh shit, I wasn't thinking. But a psychopath or a sociopath, which are, you know, there, there's no actual diagnostic for 
sociopath, psychopath, they're all just under the umbrella of um, antisocial personality disorder. So they're fa- almost interchangeable. There are differences between them, but there's actually very little dis- there's very little consistency about what the differences are between the two of them in my research. But, uh, but a sociopath or a psychopath will, you'll see like a little glint in their eye, mm-hmm. right? Or a like that reptilian look. Uh huh. Right. Yes, exactly. Or it's cold. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. Dead eyes. Dead eyes. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, I'm glad we covered that <laughs> so we can. And thank you for allowing me to, to revisit it. Oh my God. Of course. Of course. Of course. So, okay. We're going to talk about couples therapy, particularly we're going to talk about sort of like, you know, why you should not go to therapy with an abuser. It, it will unfold what we're going to talk about. First of all, a lot of people do go to therapy because they they want to save their relationship, right? They're like, right. I'm, I'm desperate to save my relationship. I want to save it. So I want to go to therapy and their partner agrees. So if they're in the process and they're, if their partner actually agrees to go, <laughs> which, is, which is, you know, a whole, a whole thing right there. Um, but if they actually agree to go, what are some of the signs in the therapy that it's not working and or could be like sh- it should should be stopped because it's not not just not working but actually dangerous yeah well first i'd like to say that um i've interviewed hundreds of therapists and my motivation for interviewing them was that so many victims that i had interviewed had said they had gone through multiple different couples therapy programs intensives all kinds of different therapeutic efforts and that nothing worked. And what I discovered in my interviews with therapists was that they have very little training on particularly covert emotional abuse or domestic violence, even in their academic schoolwork. They have to make a point to seek out continuing education units in a specific topic in order to be trained. And I just would, I naturally assumed, I know you're not supposed to assume, but that a marriage and family therapist would have had a lot of training on what breaks down marriages and families. And one would think. (laughs) And I was really surprised that that's not the case. Now, more and more, I think therapists are aware and and taking an interest in understanding narcissistic abuse, but there's still so many who do not. And so for the the top reason why not to go to therapy is because the person isn't an expert in their field. They can't all be experts at everything. And most therapists are well-meaning and want to help. But if they aren't aware of what, how they're contributing to the problem, then it's going to be a really traumatic experience for the victim because abuse is not going to be called out. It's not going to be identified. Um, they won't agree to labeling the person a narcissist. They, you know, many therapists say, well, I don't believe in labels. Well, if you can't label what you're experiencing, then you can't have what I call the first necessary step to healing. And that's clarity. You have to have clarity of the issues. You have to have somebody willing to confront. And many therapists will say, well, I'm not hired to confront. Well, 
if you see abuse and you don't confront it, then you are not aligning 100% with the victim. You are taking a mutual position, which is what couples therapy does. That's right. That's their job. Position where they are neutral and neutrality benefits only one person when abuse is present. And that's the abuser and treating the problem as though it's a 50, 50 situation. It's a communication problem. Right. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Uh Abuse is a choice. It's not an accident and it's never the victim's fault. Now, yes, the victim does play a role in the dynamic. She's codependent or she has what Ross Rosenberg calls self-love deficit disorder, where she thinks maybe I'm unlovable. She's confused though. And she doesn't understand what's fully happening, but she is not causing abuse. That's a choice that the abuser alone makes. And so you can't treat that as a mutual problem. Because even if you were to say it's an 80-20 problem, the abuser will look at her 20% as though it's 100% of the problem when that never is helpful. That's just more traumatizing because Dr. Judith Herman in her book, Trauma and Recovery, it's an amazing book. She says that for victims of any kind of abuse, they need to experience a therapeutic alignment that is 100% on their side. Mm. They need to experience that kind of absolute unwavering support. And that's just not going to happen in couples therapy. And experts in the field recognize that couples therapy is contraindicated. Even when in therapy with a couple, if they're not experts, things like um, false accusations, Mm -hmm. the abuser is very, it will very readily use false accusations. He'll take a shred of truth. So there's a little bit to make, to make it seem true because they both agree they were at the restaurant at the same time and so forth. But what actually transpired is entirely distorted. And so now the therapist is in this situation where he said, she said, and they have a hard time determining who's telling the truth. And they have a hard time imagining that someone's sitting right before them, telling them an absolute lie. They don't expect that. I mean, none of us do really. Right. We don't assume that someone's going to sit right in front of us and lie to us, but that's what abusers do because they want the victim on the hot seat. They want to avoid taking responsibility for anything. Um, they, they have that responsibility deficit disorder. That's not a real diagnosis, but <laughs> I like it. They don't want to take responsibility for anything um, that it, they don't have the coping skills to take responsibility. So they power over the victim and will make up a false narrative, which then leaves the victim stranded trying to defend herself and explain how that isn't true and having to come up with ways to prove that it isn't true. It's a lot of work that the victim has to then go through. And by the time she's done explaining, the therapy session is over and they never made any progress on the issue that she brought forth in the first place. And this is highly traumatic because therapy takes effort and work. And so she's broken down 
and weary, exhausted from going through these therapeutic, this misdirected therapy over and over and over again. Um, but there's a number of things that go wrong in therapy. Like, for example, so many victims have post-traumatic stress disorder. And so they might react really harshly when the abuser falsely accuses her or blame shifts her or minimizes her. And the therapist may not be trained in post-traumatic stress disorder. So they see this frustrated, angry victim, and they don't recognize the signs of trauma as evidentiary information to help them discern what is happening. This victim who is having an involuntary traumatic response is now questioned and saying, well, you seem awfully angry. <laughs> right. You're right. very frustrated. Right. Have you thought about us taking some time out to work on your anger issues? Things of that nature where the responsibility for the discord in the relationship is entirely laid at the victim's feet. Because couples therapists, it's not their job to label, to identify, to call out all of those things, right? It's one thing for you and I to be educating people, do not go to couples therapy with an abuser. And these are all the reasons why it will be dangerous or this, that, and the other. I think it's another thing though, when you have somebody who feels like there's marital discord, but may not actually know it's abuse. And then they go into this therapeutic process. And this, by the way, was me. Like I, I, I did too. This, you too, right? Yeah. That like you go into therapy and you're like, I just want to solve the problems. I want to heal my marriage. I want to heal the relationship and heal I want to have authentic connection. Right. I want a safe, secure attachment. Yes. With my person who person I love. That I love. Exactly. But they are going into it with a completely different agenda. And if a therapist isn't going to call that out, and I don't know that this is abuse. Like, this is how we, like, how does this person, how does like, you know, our younger versions of ourselves avoid this? Like, if we don't know it's abuse and we're sort of relying on a therapist to, to say something, because most people don't actually know what the job of a couples therapist is. And I don't think that couples therapists are very upfront when they start about it. Like, this is my purpose here. And this is my, what I'm here to do. Like, I don't know. It just feels like, it feels like that's the trap we get sucked in. It's so true. Um, most victims are in abusive relationships for many years or even decades, not understanding that the source of the relationship problem is abuse. Mm -hmm. And so the couples therapist needs to be trained to be able to identify that. But the victim, when she's shopping for a therapist, doesn't even know to ask about, have you had continuing education units on abuse, on domestic violence, on covert narcissism, things of that nature. And so they don't even ask those questions. Well, she doesn't and know that that's what she's suffering. She doesn't from. know. So she doesn't exactly. <laughs> right. A victim who is much more willing to self-reflect on her part or she's going to take on so much responsibility because she's the empath in the relationship. Right. She's, she's willing to take, to be at fault until she gets to a point where she recognizes 
that she is being unfairly treated over and over again, then she's likely to be really frustrated and angry and show that disposition. But moving up to that point, she's over-functioning. She's operating for both people trying to help the relationship. And she's willing to lay on the carpet and take the blame for whatever her part is. She gets so broken down and weary, exhausted mm-hmm. from couples therapy because it's never identified. It's just talking in circles around and around each week after week after week. I'd like to plug an organization that actually does healthy couples therapy when abuse is present. Yeah. The, oh, yes, please. It's called the Marriage Recovery Center. Mm-hmm. And um, I recommend uh, Dr. David Hawkins or Sharman Kimbrough. Uh, they're both excellent at what they do. And there are several therapists there that are very experienced in this. This is one of their focuses. I can attest to this because my husband went through the program. At the Marriage Recovery Center, one of the things that I love about what they do and what they did for me is they, I had a conversation and then I was asked to write a letter. What is it like to be married to my husband, the good, bad, and the ugly? And so I was able to write a couple of pages of examples of how I was treated and even forwarded some emails between my husband and I. And they do not just hourly, weekly sessions, but they also have group programs for male narcissists. They have codependency groups for women um, survivors, mm-hmm. and they have intensives. And what I love about intensives is you can get through weeks of therapy in like a two-day sit-down where you're spending eight hours each day getting to the bottom of some of these patterns of behaviors that need to be identified and named with the proper language attached to what the victim is experiencing. That is such a necessary first step. And in other couples therapy, it's just a one session a week or two sessions a week, and it just takes forever to get anywhere. And when you consider that the abuser is sabotaging those therapeutic encounters you don't ever make any progress, but when you are part of an intensive, you can really hone in and and an an intensive with an expert in the field, not just an intensive with anyone, because trust me, my husband and I went to other intensives where we traveled all over the place and it was really destructive. So this, the marriage recovery center, if I'm correct, right, they specialize in narcissistic abuse. They do. The abuser has to be at the point where they are willing to admit that they're an abuser. Well, that's not usually how it starts. Okay. (laughs) Dr. Hawkins of the Marriage Recovery Center says that for most abusers, there needs to be a breakdown before there can be a breakthrough. Mm -hmm. So a breakdown would be he needs to experience pain and loss. So a separation, for example, would be a good breakdown. Um, so that he's motivated to now that's not going to motivate all abusers, but many abusers don't want to lose their marriage. That's right. It works for them. And (laughs) that's right. It works really well for them. They're motivated when they're suddenly faced with a boundary that actually had a consequence. Dr. Hawkins is a big proponent for talking about, and we teach this at the men project 
a boundary without a consequence is just a complaint. That's right. You have to be willing to follow through with an ultimatum. Yes. So that the abuser feels the pain and loss of something, that yes. there's some way that he is held accountable that can, in some cases, motivate the abuser to be willing to sit through an intensive and to be confronted. And it's yeah. that confrontation that he'll recognize he's an abuser because they will absolutely use that language. It's really interesting, right? Because I say this all the time to my, you know, people in my groups and stuff that like, don't threaten to leave and then not leave because you, you threaten to leave. And then they say, you know, oh, I'll do anything. I'll do anything. I'll do anything. Stay, stay, stay. And then you go, okay. And then they don't do anything because it just even saying that they're that they'll do something worked and then you stay so the the most probably the most effective thing you can do is say i'm i'm going to go i'm going to go i'm moving out if he says he says i'll do anything then you say okay there's this program i want to do that's right and the marriage recovery center they work remotely right so they're on on Correct. zoom yeah yes and unless so- you do an intensive and most intensives are in person uh-huh. Right. Um, but they have groups that are remote and they're once a week and they have individual therapy sessions that are remote. So it's something anybody can participate in. Yeah. It's yeah. not the least expense. It's not, it's not really expensive therapy. Um, I think it's around 150 or so, maybe a little more per hour, which is pretty standard nowadays. That's pretty good, actually. I mean, for our yeah. you know, for our area, that's really good. <laughs> our area, it's really good. Um, yeah. And I might not be quoting the exact price, but I just remember that they were more reasonable than in our area. The groups, there's a fee for that as well. So not everyone, because there are those that don't have the resources to do that. But at the end of the day, if you're going to do any therapy, if you're going to invest any money in therapy, it should be something that is targeted that actually knows what they're doing. Absolutely. And you, you know, there's a lot of people that get sponsored by church members, um, Mm. if part of a faith community or family and friends that will sponsor an intensive, you can be creative and make it happen. I think that's great. I think that's great. I think it's uh, the more that we've talked about this program, the more I'm just like, everybody just go there. (laughs) We just go there. And now for a quick word from our sponsor, the all new fully revised, should I stay or should I go? After three years of this program existing in the world and changing women's lives, I decided to give it a full makeover. The all new version has all new videos, a podcast-like audio stream if you want to take the work on the go, and completely updated resources for deepening your learning. The program consists of six core modules, the first of which is Who Are You? This is the section in which you dig deeply into your own personal development and get in touch with your inner guide, slay your inner critics, mine for values, and learn how to set healthy boundaries. The second module is how you learn to love and helps you understand your attachment style, love languages, and how to properly love and care for the most important person in all of this, yourself. Module three is called Why Are Women So Exhausted? and breaks down some of the issues around toxic masculinity and male entitlement, 
the myth of being a stay-at-home mom and answers the question, he's fine. Why can't I just be happy? Module four is all about understanding abuse and includes videos on trauma bonds, understanding the cycles of abuse, particularly how they play out in your own relationship, and addresses addiction, infidelity, and mental illness. Module 5 is all about healing and moving forward and includes videos about therapy, couples therapy, healing from betrayal, emotional regulation, and grief. This section also includes my 90-minute workshop, Tackling Codependence, as well as my signature relationship inventory that will help you gain complete clarity on all the parts of your marriage and figure out what's his and what's yours. And module six answers the question, is the grass really greener on the other side? With in-depth videos on dating, cultural and religious isolation, and what happens if you end up alone forever? Spoiler, you probably won't. Whether you decide to stay or go, this program will set you up for a lifetime of clarity and fulfillment. And if you've already decided to go, the program will help you unpack all that's happened and help you heal so that you can move forward without repeating the same mistakes that got you here in the first place. This program is priced super low at just $697. And if you use the code PODCAST, when you check out, you'll get $50 off the full price. What are you waiting for? You have been agonizing with this decision for long enough. It's time to finally know, should you stay or should you go? And now back to our episode. You know, we were talking about how the the abuser is not there with the same intent that we right. are, right? So what are some of the, first of all, what are, what are they there for? I mean, they're there, they're there just to, maintain power and control and keep the relationship right they're just there to make sure you don't go anywhere but they also used to say well i thought i would be right because i would say why do you want to go to therapy why did you want to go to in hindsight after we were able to successfully um work through our issues my codependency his abuse i would say why did you want to drag me all over these places. And he goes, because I thought I would be right. He really <laughs> just wanted to win. Yes. To win. I wanted a secure attachment. I wanted emotional intimacy and connection. He wanted to win. He wasn't after, I mean, yes, he wanted to have a happy marriage, but he didn't see that he had any part to play. Right. <laughs> of course. Of course not. <laughs> So, okay. So once they're in there, what are some of the tactics that they use during well, sort of let's, sabotage? Let's or say, yeah, right. They, they'll they use anything and everything, just like covert emotional abuse. They'll use it on the therapist. So let's say that the therapist notices that they're blame shifting a lot and they call out blame shifting. The abuser might stop blame shifting, but they'll shift over to some other behavior they will be defensive. They will not be showing signs that they cherish their spouse's feelings. They won't be showing signs of empathy. They might say, oh, she's the most important person in the world to me, which can be very confusing for the therapist and for the spouse, but their actions are incongruent. Yeah. And if you need to apologize for something, 
the affect won't line up with the words. You'll see that they will just, it will be that reptilian, cold, aloof apology. It won't be one that's really trying to be convincing and sincere where they take ownership, where they're willing to follow through with reparations. Let's say they slandered their spouse, their the victim spouse. They should then have to not only sincerely apologize, but reach out and correct their behavior, which is takes a lot of humility. Right. But an abuser, humility is humiliation. And mm-hmm. so there's a lot of defensiveness. I mean, I think it's really interesting, right, that we were talking about that their number one goal in therapy, right? If you say like, what are your goals? And of course the the abuser will say like, well, to, you know, stop having these problems or to be more, you know, to have a happy marriage or stop arguing, stop fighting. But really their goal is to win. That's right. To be right. To be right. If a therapist is trained, they're going to really recognize the defensiveness and the overpowering that the abuser is demonstrating and their inability to be empathic. Um, Like, for example, if they were to, if the therapist were to ask the victim, what do you think your husband is feeling right now? She would be able to articulate what she believes he's feeling and or thinking. She's acutely aware of a lot of the patterns that are playing out. And, and she's thought about it. She's over-functioning. She's read books. Yeah, she's, she's over overly empathic. Overly. And so she's able to identify. And if you ask that of the abuser, he will very unlikely be able to identify what the spouse is feeling. He will be completely disconnected from that. He will more likely go into complaining more complaints about the spouse rather than really trying to connect with where she's coming from. Or he, you know, I would say like my husband would be a master at imagining how I must be feeling. Right. Cause that was, we were in imago therapy. So that was part of the process, right? You go through the mirroring and then the summary, and then you say, I imagine you must be feeling right. And he would be great at that. There's a difference between imagining what someone must be feeling and actually caring. <laughs> they, they might be, that's where it's important to know that their affect, like their body language and their facial expression won't be showing a lot of compassion and a real deep connection. They don't care about connection, emotional connection. They're emotionally immature. And so they're not evolved in that way. They have a limited emotional resources available to them. Anger is one that they're probably in touch with and feeling slighted because yeah. they feel slighted often. Or threatened that they're being exposed. Oh, yes. That's where you yeah. get that defensiveness. Mm-hmm. They don't want to be found out. Right. So you won't see the expression on their face that you would think you would see from someone who's really mirroring back and identifying with what you must be feeling. Right. It's like they can say the words, but they're not actually expressing it in their body language and their facial expression. Right. Exactly. Exactly. So, okay. So 
we're talking about like tactics that are commonly used by abusers. So some, some of them is right. They'll like say all the words, <laughs> but they're not, they're not actually changing, right? They will say everything that is needed to be said in order to uh, sort of uh, get away yeah, with these appease the therapist or whatever. Yeah. Right. Or, can, or just, you know, continue to get away with it. If you're sort of in this cycle for like a really long time and you are a victim and you're like, I can't do this. Like it's not, nothing's changing. We go to therapy, we get into these things. There's a cycle that we go through in therapy where suddenly I'm feeling like I'm more to blame or we're talking more about me and like nothing is changing at home. How do you, if you're just like, I can't do this anymore because you realize it is causing you more harm or you're listening to this podcast and you're like, oh, that's what's wrong. Yeah. That's why my therapy is not working. What do you do? Personally, I would ask to speak to the therapist alone. Mm -hmm. That's what I would do. Now that's not going to work for everyone because some people are too traumatized and their therapists are too aggressive. There's some therapists that are just really Sadly, often um, I'm hearing more about this in faith-based therapists. Yes, absolutely. absolutely. They just are projecting all these biblical legalistic rules and they guilt, they shame the victim into feeling like they're abandoning the relationship. They're abandoning their responsibility. They're not taking responsibility. In a perfect world, I would be able to say, Go to the Men Project website, educate yourself on covert emotional abuse or covert narcissism. This is what I'm experiencing. You're not addressing it. You're not confronting it. You're not labeling it. I feel like you feel that you have an alignment to both of us when I need to be fully supported because I'm not responsible for abuse. It needs to be confronted. And without it being confronted, I would say that is the protocol when any form of abuse is pre present is to separate the couple out of couples therapy and to have an expert deal with the narcissism and an expert deal with the codependency. And I'm not experiencing that. I would just stop. But the problem is so many times when the victim stops, then, and this happened to me too, but, and I know I'm not the only story, then the abuser tells their friends, well, my wife won't go to therapy and people begin judging the victim for not go, not being willing to strive to save the marriage and to work in couples therapy because most of the public at large doesn't understand that it's not healthy to be in couples therapy. So she gets a double she gets double abuse um, judgment from others that she really was hoping to be feel supported by, and so this is because abusers will often bring scapegoat the victim as just part of their other you know emotionally abusive tactics which then marginalizes the victim further so it's hard to leave therapy but i say try your very best to recognize that you are your own person you are an adult you know your truth and try to tune out the noise that other people are making and don't take that on don't allow that to define you because that is you losing your own identity. You're giving it over to people who are not knowledgeable and who I realize 
you may have felt that you had a secure attachment with them. They were your good family members or good friends or part of your social circle, but you have to be strong enough to be able to tune out that incorrect noise and stay to your truth and know that you're pursuing what's healthy and right and that you will never attain that in a dysfunctional therapeutic relationship with your narcissist. A good therapist will not entertain the abuser's feelings. They will be in, they will be confronting their faulty thinking, mm. their thoughts, their belief system, you know, their their entitlement, their entitlement, their um their patriarchy if that's part of their belief system, their hierarchical, their domineering, their hierarchical beliefs about themselves in the relationship. Those thoughts will be very heavily confronted and unpacked and mm-hmm. they need to be thoroughly unpacked before couples therapy can ever be reinstated. They need to be unpacked and resolved before couples therapy can be reinstated. And so if your therapist is asking your abuser, how does that make you feel when you hear her say that? Exit, time out. This is not the right place for that. This is not the right modality. So, okay. So you, if you decide the couples therapy is like, it's not working, like this is, this therapist does not understand what's happening. Or if I go to the therapist and I say like, this is crazy, this is what's happening. And then they go, oh, okay. And they actually get it. Can the individuals then continue on with that? Like, is it, is it appropriate for individuals of the couple to then continue to see the couples therapist separately? I would prefer that they have a separate therapist. Because the victim is going to, you know, you and I are now talking on the other side of our journey. Yes. When you're in the journey, you fear being abandoned. You feel being mischaracterized. You have a lot of fears. Yes. Until you have the clarity and the confidence and that you're further along on your healing journey. They're they're going to at times mistrust the therapist and wonder if they are being persuaded by the narcissist. And so you just don't, I just don't think it's healthy for the victim to ever put themselves in that risky position. They need to feel absolutely 100% served by their therapist. That's right. What I would recommend is that the therapist helps find another therapist for the narcissist who's an expert on narcissism Mm. that they both. So now they're in collaborative therapy I would request from my spouse that they sign a release so that they can speak to their, the therapist can speak to the other therapist or that the therapist can be allowed to speak to the victim's spouse. So the abuser's therapist can be allowed to speak to the victim's spouse Mm -hmm. so that they can hear their version of what transpired the week before. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Can forward emails, et cetera, and that it's all on the up and up and that everyone is transparent. Right. But it's really important that you feel like your therapist is working for you. Absolutely. Because if you feel like your therapist was working for you, but your therapist is also working for your abuser, your therapist isn't 
really working for either one of you or you don't you mean you don't feel safe it's it's an ethical violation anyway like most good therapists will not do that um you'd be surprised oh no i'm saying yeah. i said most good therapists good. Yeah. <laughs> oh i would not i mean it is shocking the number of therapists who will do this and it's awful it's awful and the only time at which it in which uh, at which it's really okay is if you're in a rural area where there's just not a lot of therapists available. Um, but now with, with, you know, online and we've been just been doing everything online. If you can find someone in a major city, um, in your state, you can have a really good therapist, but I mean, it is shocking. And I, and I talk about this all the time in my group where someone will say, well, like, well, when my, in my husband's, you know, my husband and I both see the same therapist and I'm like, uh, uh-uh. <laughs> no. Well, actually now that my husband and I have traveled through all this distance, we actually see, he sees my therapist now, but I have established a long-standing relationship with her. I absolutely trust her. She understands the dynamics which we don't have those dynamics anymore, but she is absolutely aligned with me. And I believe in how qualified she is as a therapist. And Mm -hmm. so I like knowing that my husband is in really good hands. Um, It's not abuse work anymore. It's, it's other things. And so, but that's not the normal situation. I don't recommend that necessarily. I agree with what you're saying that you want to have separate therapists. Yeah. There are exceptions to every rule, but there they would be very, very specific, like in your case, or I mean, my therapist wouldn't even work with my friends. Like mm-hmm. she was like, No, I'm yours. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> I'm yours. And she's and I think she was addressing my codependence in being like, Oh, but I want all my friends to have you. And she was like, No, 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 I'm your therapist. That's it. Okay, one last question. Uh, before we go, but so assuming that we decide this, like both people are like, okay, I'll go to, I'll go to individual therapy. How can the victim uh, know that therapy is working on the, the abuser's end? Like, how do we know that? Like you were talking about, we don't talk about like, how are you feeling? We're talking about mindset. You know, what is the mindset of the abuser? How does a victim know or feel safe that their abuser is actually sort of doing the right therapy. That's actually the things that are being, that need to be addressed are being addressed. Well, she'll start seeing results. (laughs) Fair enough. If she's not seeing the results, you know, what typically what happens is the narcissist says, well, my therapist says that you have this problem and that problem. And then you know that it's not a healthy situation. And it's really hard to get an abuser to leave a therapist that's supporting them like that um, and not confronting them. You really want to have be allowed to have access to the therapist. What I was able to do at the Marriage Recovery Center, so my husband went to Dr. Hawkins. I did not go to Dr. Hawkins, but I was able to send an email every week that says, this is what happened, my version, this past week. Hmm. Um, And I just took two paragraphs, shot it off. And that way, when my husband was in therapy with them, those issues were confronted. 
the issues were being confronted in real time and there was integrity to the process. And I just cannot emphasize enough how important it is that the victim has a voice in the therapeutic process. And if they're not allowed to have that voice, she's likely not going to feel safe and she's likely not going to see results. Um, And so I would move on to someone else. Yep. I think that's great. What so often happens is that the therapist of the abuser says, I'm not going to confront him too strong because he's going to leave therapy. Right. He'll walk out. Yeah. He'll walk out. And if he walks out, then who's going to care for the abuser? And I say, let him walk out. Let him leave therapy and deal with those consequences. Let him be confronted. And if he gets upset that he quits, Mm. let that sit on his shoulders. Let him carry his own anxiety for the failure of a therapeutic situation because he couldn't tolerate being confronted. Let him sit with that. Yes. Instead of trying to rescue him from those feelings. Yeah. And there have to be consequences, right? It's like, it's not just a consequence of like, oh, he doesn't have a therapist anymore. It's like, no, 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 you, and you move out and you follow through. Or if you haven't, you know, if you already did move out, like there are consequences, right? If he wants the marriage to work, he has to do X. If he doesn't do X, the marriage doesn't work. And that is on the victim to hold those boundaries, which is so hard yes. for us because it, we've been so, hard. so, first of all, if we're, if we're codependent, it's, it's really hard, but we've also been brainwashed and trained that we don't matter and that are, you know, and, and, and they're so good at manipulating that it, that's, that's, I think the hardest part. Yeah. And they, we fear being abandoned, right? We fear that they're just going to replace us with somebody else or, Leave the relationship. And we want the relationship. And we want the relationship. We want to fix the relationship. We want it to be better. We are trauma bonded to this person. And we are the very person that's causing us harm. We're seeking a healthy attachment from that same person to soothe our wounds that are being caused by that person. We want them to soothe those wounds. And it's this vicious cycle of these hopes that are dashed and it wanes and flows, you know, he'll do something small that makes you have hope and then he'll undermine it all with more abusive behaviors. And it's just this cycle that continues over and over again. Yeah. And really the only way out is to hold our ground in getting out. And if he actually feels those consequences and then does the true real work, then there's, there's a possibility for healing. I think it's really important. I want to reiterate in your case, Annette, you and your husband were separated for three years, right? That's right. Three years. So like when I hear people being like, well, he's doing the work and it's, it's been a couple of months, but he's doing the work. That's not the work. That's not, that's not the time to go back. No. In fact, the first year he wouldn't even talk to me. Um, We had like, I would want to talk about finances or whatever. And he would call my assistant. Like he wouldn't talk to me. Mm. And so there was nothing. And then the second year 
I, I was ready to move on and get a divorce at that point. And I said, if you want to, there is this one place that I recommend that has come highly recommended. And I brought that up and it took about two years of him doing the work. Now, much of the first year, he was oppositional with mm-hmm. the therapist. Uh-huh. He was ready to quit. He was not cooperative. He was not earnestly looking at himself. He was rebutting the therapist. And it took a long time. I like to use the analogy of um, politics. If you told a left-leaning Democrat or liberal that they had to travel their viewpoints all the way over to a right-leaning Republican or vice versa, it's it's a long distance of travel, of being mentored, of reading, of really being willing to self-examine your beliefs. And it's it's a huge distance to travel whichever direction you're going. And it's the same for an abuser because their beliefs are so entrenched and just so embedded and rigid. And to unpack that when they believe they are right about their the way they view the world, they right. don't realize it's like a fish that doesn't know it's wet. They yeah. have no idea they're different yep. from other people. They think yes. they're normal and healthy. And so yeah. Um, and they even and you know, even people in early recovery, right? You'll see people in like three months and they they realize it and they're doing the work and now they're like, okay, like I get it now. And it's like, no, you get maybe the tip of the iceberg. There is so much more. There is just so much more because it is that foundational. It's like everything underneath that's and underneath the iceberg, right? It's the, it's everything that's underneath what you see above the water, right? Like this so much deeper and bigger. I mean, I have a friend who's going through it right now and it's like, you know, he just keeps saying like, oh my God, but I've changed. And I'm like, no, you haven't. All, all that's happened is that you have seen yeah. What you were like and what you, you know, how you functioned, which is wonderful and enormous and huge, but you haven't yet changed because it's been three months. <laughs> yeah. So true. You know, I wanted to circle back around because I think um, it's so important to really validate victims that have to set a boundary when it's so scary because okay. when there's a boundary, the abuser retaliates and does all kinds of crazy making gaslighting tactics to break that boundary, you know, to crash through the boundary. And she has to be so strong. It's like she's in a lifeboat. And when you are in a lifeboat and you're really paddling for yourself, you're going to take on water. And so when you set a boundary, if you haven't been setting boundaries with consequences, when you begin to do that, you have to expect that you're going to take on water. There's going to be, in some cases, more trauma initially at that time until the abuser really understands that you mean your word, that you have resolve. And so it's, it's likely you have to, one has to prepare themselves for that added trauma that's going to go on during that time and look at it realistically that this is, a phase. Um, It's not going to last forever. You have to go through this process to get on the other side. 
And it's usually a lot worse in the beginning. Um, when you, when you lay down the, when you lay the line down. Yeah, I think that's, that's right. You know, abusers tend to abuse to the level at which they, they need to, in order to maintain control. And if it's not working, they're going to escalate. Correct. And then if it's still not working, then they're going to escalate. And then if it's still not working, they're going to escalate. And if they get, you know, either they're going to escalate all the way and then you, you know, really know where you're at. But if they start to, if they keep escalating and realizing, oh shit, it's not working this time, they're going to look at you and go, oh, wow, you actually mean it. Okay. And that's the moment that they become willing to do the work. Yep. And that is not the moment you take them back. (laughs) No, that's not the moment you take them back. (laughs) That is the moment you say, okay, go get help. That's one reason why I'm so believe in separation because you need to have some safe space where you don't, you're not in the midst of the chaos. That's right. Yes. It's scary to go through a separation and there's finances and housing and kids and complications. But if you in any way can do that and you can still convey to your spouse, I love you enough to go through this because I we will divorce if we stay in the same household and we don't work on our problems. You can, you don't have to be mean spirited. You just need to be firm and have resolve when you issue a boundary. That's right. That, you know, a boundary is one thing, but it's holding it right. It's everyone's really good at setting a boundary. Like that's not like, that's the easy part. <laughs> the yeah, hard part want. Yeah. Is, is like holding it when people are pushing against it. That's yeah. the hard part. So true. Uh, Annette, thank you so much for coming back. I so appreciate you. I love talking to you. And I've had a lot of, of um, my listeners uh, join your programs, which is so wonderful. That's so great. Yeah, we love having them. Kate, thank you for having me. I so appreciate it. And I appreciate your support. And I appreciate all that you're doing to raise awareness and really speak into this topic too. We we need to be speaking about this topic. We do. We do. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the Divorce Survival Guide podcast. If you like what you hear, head on over to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen in and leave me a review. And don't forget to follow me on Instagram at The Divorce Survival Guide. I'll see you next time. And until then, remember, you, my love, deserve to be happy.